Oh, I've seen some scripts I know the words weren't spelled right. There was hardly any commas in it at all. So I don't think that's too important. Hey, you want to get on the train here or you want to ruin another take, huh? It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. Man, I don't drop character till I've done a DVD commentary. You want to eat the writer? Be my guest. That will leave you to explain how else your character is supposed to get to Bremen. Welcome to another episode of the In the Mouth of Darkness Chatcast. I'm your host, Brad Gullickson, the Mouth Dork, and joining me today is Billy Das, the Indie Dork. What's up, Billy? Man, we just keep continuing to live our best lives. Uh, I feel like this weekend was pretty rad, actually. Uh, pretty, pretty, pretty rad. Pretty rad, you say. Yeah, pretty rad, you say. <laughs> I do say. I agree with you. I was going to challenge you for some reason. I'm feeling a little combative. Uh, you know, we're it's it's now two weeks in a row where we've been back on the cast together, like yeah. the good old days, like the Chattanooga Chatcast days. Ooh, yeah. Uh, and I just wanted to pick a fight with you for some reason. Uh, but maybe that's also the like male aggression that is pumping through my uh, body 24-7 because I have just recently watched You Were Never Really Here ah. uh, from director Lynn Ramsey. I see, I see. So, well, a lot of discussion of violence there. I'm worried you took the wrong message from Did that I? movie. Did I? <laughs> I, I? I don't know. I've bought a whole bunch of ball-peen hammers. I'm ready to take on the world. I feel safe. <laughs> Uh, but all kidding aside, this is a really cool and unique episode, even for our channel. Yeah. Uh, because we have Al White, A.T. White, returning to the podcast to discuss not his film Starfish, which if you'd like to hear that conversation, you can go back into our feed and listen to that episode. It was all the way back in time to episode eight, a yeah. classic. Episode eight. That's not even the second take for that. No, not the second take <laughs> at all, Billy. We all know what episode it is, I Billy. knew what episode it was the entire time i knew what podcast i'm on Peek behind the curtain there uh but no al is coming on to talk about you were never really here from lynn ramsey which he claims to be the best film of the decade and because the alamo draft house in winchester virginia is the rad place that it is they invited al to come back and to screen his film and then afterwards have a conversation with us along with a bunch of Alamo Drafthouse, Winchester, Virginia patrons, and it gets real. It does. Well, I like any conversation that starts from the ridiculous claim that a singular movie is the best film of the decade, and I think Al even acknowledges that a little bit. That's a ridiculous claim? That uh, there is a best movie of the decade? What's the best movie of the decade, Brad? Well, tune into this Let's conversation. Let's fight about it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it. Paddington 2. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it. Um, but that's what this chat's about. It's about how do we uh, make our lists? Why do we make our lists? Uh, and, and why does You Were Never Really Here resonate so strongly with Al, but also, as you'll hear, uh, so strongly with the rest of the audience. I mean, I think, you know, I, we're very blessed on this podcast to be able to talk with a lot of filmmakers about their works. And I think that that's really special. And I love every conversation that we have for that. But my favorite conversations are talking with filmmakers about not their movies, but the ones that they love the most. I find them to be very, very insightful and, and really good conversation. Yeah. Uh, at the end of last year, uh, the Alamo had Leonard and Jesse Malton, uh, at, at the uh, theater programming uh, Alexander Payne's uh, Citizen Ruth. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was a really special experience. And I think it, it sparked a little idea in programmer Andy Geyerson's head uh, that mm, maybe we should have more artists program events 
at our theater. We already have those really rad ITMA dorks with their still awesome screenings. That's true, that's we true. We have Faye with her Psycho Cinema screenings, and Andy has his film club. But what about a guy like Al? Let's bring his taste into the theater. Let's go get Edgar Wright next. Let's yes. have him program a week. I think he would do that. I think he would. I think he would. Because who doesn't love to share their passions? Well, that's exactly right? what it is. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. I, I mean, when, when you talk to filmmakers about their work, by the time you're talking to them about it, they're really maybe two projects ahead of what's being released to the public. And so it, I, I'm not saying they're not passionate, but boy, when you talk to somebody about what their favorite movie is, that's where you get a passionate discussion. Well, I always anticipate when Quentin Tarantino drops his top 10 at the end yeah, of the year. Exactly. Because you get to see how his tastes radically differ from the typical critical response, right? Or when you watch Martin Scorsese's personal journey through cinema, you get to see the movies that informed Goodfellas, yeah. right? And I just think that's so crucial. Uh, and so before we jump into this roundtable conversation about You Were Never Really Here, I also wanted to give Al the opportunity to just state why he thinks this film is the best film of the decade. And he did so to the crowd and we captured it on audio. And this is just a little bit from his introduction. Ladies and gentlemen, Al White! Why is this your favorite film of the decade? Because it's the best film of the decade. Yes! Um, Apparently that's subjective, but we'll see. Um, <laughs> honestly, I'm really, really like, this is one of the happiest points in my entire life because <gasps> making a film again to show it is humbling, but also terrible when you want to eat yourself while that's happening. But again, to show a film you love at a place like this, and I'm not, I don't, I can't lie to people. Like this is honestly the best community that I've found going across America. And I've been to a lot of Alamos and a lot of cinemas. <laughs> Hands down, like there's not even close. And Andy is like, has been so lovely with me, like allow me to show something like this for the third time apparently, which one I suggested that you didn't let me know that. No, 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 no. I was just so, like, oh, why do I watch this movie? Yes! The fact that you guys have also come out on 11 a.m. on a Saturday morning to see a film, which luckily loads of you haven't seen, that's incredible. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. And as part- From New York. From New York? Um, that's, like, honestly, it's one of the main reasons is when you hear how many people have seen Joker, and don't get me wrong, films shouldn't be in competition with each other. That's why awards are kind of stupid. But this is better. Uh, but, <laughs> but it's a very similar role, and that's why it's interesting. He just won the Oscar for a role playing someone with a form of mental illness who's looking after his elderly mother, who then goes on a journey that, depending on your interpretation of Joker and how much you trust that director's own interpretation, uh, is either in a positive or negative place where that film ends. This film is about very similar things, as you will see. Uh, it was made like a year before by a female director from Britain who's only made four films since the 90s. And I would like to think that's on purpose and not because people won't give her funding, but who knows. Um, she made Rat Catchers, then she made Morven Callow, which is my second favorite of hers. Um, and then she made We Need to Talk About Kevin, which is the one most people have seen, which is also an excellent film. Um, yeah, this is by far my favorite of hers. Uh, the cinematography, the directing, the way she handles violence around violence. Um, it's a very delicate subject matter. And just the complexity of dealing with a character like this, whereas Joker, I feel, launches into what would be fun, what would look cool, and then it's like it's up to you to interpret that. This, I think, they're definitely trying to say things, and they're understanding how complicated that is um, and respectful of it. All right, and that's Al White on why You Were Never Really Here is the best film of the decade. All I heard was better than Joker? <laughs> that's all it takes? <laughs> I, Joker's a pretty good movie. I, I mean, it's, I like it's, it's, it's a, a good movie. 
great. Uh, yeah, that took a direction. Uh, but no, so um, I, what's next? We got the entire conversation with uh, Al about You Were Never Really Here. But I think the other thing that makes this really, really special um, is the film club community uh, at the Alamo Draft House in Winchester, Virginia that showed up to participate in this really massive chat. I think yeah, it's our most yeah. successful attendance for one of these great big chats. Longtime listeners should know already we have started a new series of episodes with the film club attendees called the ITMOD Chat Clubs, where we invite yeah. uh, the audiences after films to discuss the movies that they just saw. Our first episode focused on several foreign films that they were playing in January. We talked uh, Pain and Glory. We talked Amelie. Parasite. We Parasite. Parasite, such a great movie, Andy. Such a great movie. How could Andy. you think it's not the best film of the year? Andy, Andy, Andy. So we had a really great conversation. <laughs> you should check that episode out. We're going to do another chat club in March. Uh, if you're listening right now, you can join us on March 9th at 6 o'clock. We're going to go from 6 to 8, and we're going to discuss all the movies that they saw uh, as part of the Denzel Washington series that they did in February. Uh, and so we're going to be doing this every month. And I guess that, that, you know, this conversation that we have here is kind of chat club session 1.2, uh, where we talk with Al and the rest of the gang about why you were never really here is better than Joker. Yes. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to leave that final statement there, which I mean, yeah, this is it's it's, true. It is. It's just accurate. It's, it's just, just accurate. accurate. It's accurate. Um, and just say, you know, I, I, I do really enjoy talking with Al about the movies that he likes, but I think that this conversation was absolutely lovely and the film community is awesome. Um, and, and that's really, I think what makes this such an enjoyable conversation to listen to. But you guys have been going, uh, Brad and Billy, you've been talking for 10 minutes. Can we actually get to the meat of this episode? Well, fine, hang on. I've, fine, I've got, fine. I've got several more things that I'd like to get into at length. No, Billy. <laughs> and as promised, we're back in the Alamo Drafthouse Winchester projection booth. And we've got a big crowd with us. Let's hear the big For Itmud Chat Club Session One, uh, not here. Not here. And the people who were there for that aren't yeah. here. I was here. Oh, you were here. Yeah. So there was two of us. But now here we are uh, talking about you were never really here. Uh, you know, Mr. Al White claims claims it is the best film of the decade. Uh, the court is now in session. We'll talk about that in a second. But before we do, I want to go around the very large table and the people who aren't even on the table uh, and uh, introduce ourselves and just answer yay or nay, is You Were Never Really Here the best film of the decade? I like that. 2000, I like that. Uh, we, is it 10? We, is it 2010 to 2019? Yes. That's how a decade yeah. works? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What? So 2010 to 2019. You're doing terrible, Billy. <laughs> Be quiet. You haven't even been introduced yet. Uh, all right. I'll start with my introduction. <laughs> I am Brad. And, uh, nay. <laughs> Who's to my left? I'm Zenith. Hello, everyone. Hello. I came in from New York for this event. So I'm happy to be here. So your vote counts for triple, is what you're saying, I feel. Yeah. For hour of travel, that's you time it. Is anybody it actually keeping tally? No. Oh, yes. No. Um, <laughs> I won't disagree. I have to. Yay or nay? Yay or nay? Yay. 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 We got to get around this right. table. We got to get around this Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, Next. Al's already, Al, introduce yourself. I'm Al White, and I could just be controversial now and say nay. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I hate that movie. Um, yeah. Why yeah, not? Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, Deb and on a Hagazusa score, <laughs> I, would, I would rate it kind of less than Hagazusa, which is like not as disgusting. But um, I thought it was very memorable in terms of, and I thought it was very well done, and I think Walking King Phoenix is amazing. But is it my favorite movie, or is it the best movie? <laughs> all right. Okay. All right. Only in film club will you find that Hagazusa ratings. Yeah. I like how we're starting off uh, very combative. I think that's my fault. I feel a little emotionally bullied right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. This is not a safe space. Uh, it was a good movie. Uh, I'm not sure it's the best. I have to do a little research on that. That's a yay. Yay. Okay. <laughs> it was my favorite. But it was pretty good. Uh, my name's Chris, and I thought it was absolutely amazing. Uh, brilliant storytelling. As I told Jen here, any movie where there's so little dialogue, yet tells such an amazing story, and the scenery, the music, everything about it was absolutely brilliant. Best film of the decade. Thumbs up. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. All right. <laughs> you could do what do you want for lunch? <laughs> um, I'm Jen. I'm still processing what I saw, so that says something to me that it might be that mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. We're balancing it out. Yes. Here. Okay. All right. Yes. Balancing. Lisa. 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 Yes. Roden. Lisa Roden. Hi. Um, Come in. I would not disagree with that. I think it is of the best. Um, I, I just have two other films that I love so much too. Okay, Pirates so. are not afraid. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful movie. Good, it's a good one. Decade as well. Yep. Um, Thunder Road is still one of my. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but in terms of action and the intensity of it, the performance. Oh my God! So much better than Joker. Oh, we're not we're fighting Joker started. right now. Uh, that's, we're trying to start. that's a nay for Lisa Bell Roden. Thank you. I can't. It's my podcast. Okay. Uh, Daniel, I wouldn't befriend someone if they said it is, but it's me. I'll take it. Uh, hi, I'm Lindsay. Uh, I do really love this movie. Uh, it is not... My favorite of the decade, but it's up there. So, but I'm still gonna go name. <laughs> uh, Heather Leach. Second time around seeing this. Um, when was my cousin Vinny? I want to say the lack of dialogue, the the music specifically. What I yeah. love about the score is that. You don't know. You don't even really recognize it's there. It's such a part of. It's an. It's an actor. It's. It, it is a part of. It's its own entity, and so it just flows so well. And the topic is a little personal, so it's like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's in there. I'll go top five. Okay, that's a nay. Okay, I'm gonna test Brad on this. All right, I'm Ariel. Uh, I would say within nonfiction. So no. <laughs> no. Within nonfiction films, there is another film I like better, but within fiction films, this is the best of the decade. I 
So Homeland Iraq, or uh, Homeland Iraq Year Zero is my other pick. Documentaries are movies, so nay. Brutality. My name's Rachel. Um, I would definitely put it in the top five, but it's my first time seeing it, and I still feel like I'm... I feel like I just went through this whole emotional roller coaster, so I'm still processing it. I'll take it. I'll take that. I just want to say, I had tears at the end of the movie. I think there's a few people that had tears in that. Yeah. I didn't know that. There was a lot of emotion in that film. Uh, My name is Brandon. Um, It could be. I I think that um, it's an unfair question for somebody seeing it for the first time. There's a lot to process there. (laughs) But it's the best score of the decade. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) My name's Steve, a.k.a. G-Paw. This is my third time saying it here. And somebody's got to vote yay. So, yay! <laughs> yay. Uh, my name is Billy. This is my second time seeing this movie. And I vote nay for the best film of the decade. But it, it's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> Andy. Andy. Andy G. Andy G. Uh, I vote yay for Al White, nay for this film as best today. <laughs> I'll take it. Hey, I'm Rich. Over the last decade, since joining Film Club, I've seen about 500 films that spanned a, a century. Um, I can't tell you all the films of the last decade that I saw. So I'm also processing this, and, and uh, I think it's an outstanding movie. But the best of the decade, I'll go out on a limb and say nay. Hey. That's going out on a limb? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Beth. Um, I was going to just say ditto, but I don't think that's going out on a limb. Um, the researcher in me wants to go back and look at every movie I've seen. And um, then I'm sort of, I am sort of piggybacking on what other people said. As I, I was going to just go no, I want to see everything. But I mean, this is a really huge movie, and the score was tremendous. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really did drag you in as opposed to listening to what Heather was saying and going, come on, let's yay or nay it, but um, I wonder what I will say in a week or a month. Um, it is definitely a fantastic film, so. Yeah, I, no I do. is really the answer right now, however. I do want to jump in and say, like, I agree with all, but, like, the very first time, we were just talking about this coming up the stairs, but, like, the first time pretty much any of my favorite films just of all time, the first time I see them, they aren't my favorite film. There's something that like lingers in your, in your taste buds and in your brain, and then you have to come back to it later, and then you're like, yeah, this is really, really special. There's only a couple which immediately are kind of like, yeah, this is one of my very favorites. Yeah, I, I certainly uh, agree with that. And this is my third time watching it, and I boosted it up from four stars to five stars. I really do think it's a flawless movie. I, yeah. I, I found it tremendously moving afterwards. And I, of course, I immediately start talking with Lisa Bell Roden who's sitting next to me because Billy was like rocked by the experience. I was not prepared to talk to anyone. And he could not talk to me afterwards. (laughs) And so it's an incredibly powerful film and it is an unfair question to pose to all of you, especially with Al here who, you know, we're just torturing him by telling him that it's not the best film of the decade. There were a lot of positive, I wasn't expecting that much positive feedback because again, the first time I saw this was a small cinema in London. There weren't many people there. Two of them walked out Another two was like, uh, we're talking about it, uh, but this hipster guy with his, his 
of judging people because I'm obviously slightly hipster. Lynn Ramsey. Everybody hates their own, right? Um, but like, he was with this with his girlfriend who was just very preoccupied with looking at herself in her phone and putting makeup on before going into a dark room to watch a movie. Which is like nobody probably ever cares, but particularly now, nobody cares. And she, like seeing them come out of that was just hilarious because she was just like she was so angry. Like, she was so angry with that movie. But for me, that was one of the things that instilled it in my brain of, like, I need to watch this again. Because any film that can make people that angry, like, it's, it's doing something right. I, I, I think that you have a, a lot to, to hang a conversation on about whether or not this is the best movie of the decade. Whether anybody agrees with it, I'm, I'm with Brad. I think it's a flawless film. I would be curious, Al, when, when you're talking about this movie with other people, how, how do you pitch it? How do you, how do you prepare people to take this in and appreciate it with the same focus that you get? Well, I think, I think actually one of the things I love about it, which is kind of more relevant now, um, after the Oscars, not Joker, don't worry, calm down. Uh, <laughs> but with Parasite, is like I always kind of pictures of this is actually a lot of similarities with Korean movies. Um, only she, Lynn Ramsey isn't interested in the violence. And that's one of the things I love about this movie, because you have to build up, and, and the first time you see it, I think we're conditioned to want that satisfaction at the end of the film. Like you want yes. to see him go in that house and destroy everyone and tear them apart, but that's not what the movie's about at all. Um, so there is, like, even for me, it's like, I love a, a slow burn and something that, did, you know, subverts your expectations, but the first time I was a little bit like, oh, I wish it had given me that satisfaction at the end, but from repeated viewings, which a Korean film would have, like a Korean film, like, yeah. generalization, obviously there are exceptions, would have given you that satisfaction at the end. And that's why I think it makes this film extra special. It's also actually really, it's actually a short movie. Mm-hmm. Like, it's its not like. It's under 90 minutes. It's like yeah. 87. 80 some odd minutes. Yeah. Which is crazy because it's obviously very slow and very sort of deliberately paced. Yeah. Um, but there's so much that's in that movie. I know after third time seeing it, every time I see it, there's a little bit more that I find in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a it lot of feel us. like an 87 long movie. No. I mean, it no. feels like a two-hour because of the emotional response, but also because of the, for me, the character development within it as well. I mean, it feels like we get more of his and who he is through those fast snippets throughout. And there was things that I caught this time, like many of you have already said that I missed the last time, one being the scratches on the young boy's legs yes. as he's mm. pacing the hallway right there. I, I never saw that until this time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's strange for a movie that is so slow that there's actually very little wasted time. Like, yeah. there's very little fat in the movie. When you actually pick it apart scene by scene, it's like it's all giving you information if you're paying attention and joining yeah. those dots. So before we get too uh, into the weeds of discussing about discussing this film uh, as a whole, I do want to just talk about the idea of saying, like, this is the best film of the decade you know, when when you are making your top 10 list at the end of the year uh, uh, talking about talking to other people about your favorite movie of the year is it your favorite movie or are you saying this is the best film this is the best film for you this is the best film objectively because of the entire craft of it the editing the score the direction the performance I'm going to start with you Al since you're since the one who made literally open yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Look, yeah, no, I think you raise a very, very good point. And obviously it's, it's, it's silly to, like, say things like that. We do it just, well, I personally do it a lot, but just because I grew up as a list maker, I don't know why, it's just how my brain works. I have lists all over my laptop of my favorite sandwiches to my favorite cities in America. To my Ruben, favorite, can we bring that out? Can we bring that sandwich <laughs> Ruben's sandwich. <laughs> um, it's just, like, I've my mom will tell you I was a nightmare growing up. Like, it's just in the back of the car, constantly, like, what's your favorite this? What's your favorite this? Like, it's just how my brain operates. Um, but I do think you're right in that. If you watch a lot of films, like everybody here obviously does, I think you grow to be cultured to be able to separate those things. And you can say objectively, 
this is a superbly made movie in terms of how it's handled and how it's you know, structured and cinematography and sound and acting and all that stuff. But you can still hate it. And vice versa, you can have a movie that just resonates with you and like, this is my favorite film of how, whenever. But actually, objectively, I get it's not that great. But this just, you know, for me, resonates. Sonic the Hedgehog. Reason. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's resonating with a lot of people right now. It is. It so, is. I don't and this, and yeah, for me, like my absolute favorite movies are those rare ones that cross both barriers. Like this, for me, is a film that objectively, I completely get why people would hate this movie. Absolutely understand that. Um, but objectively, I would hope they would still be able to go, great performances, yeah, great score. Maybe it could be too slow for some people, but some beautiful shots, you know, all that stuff. Um, but for me, objectively, it's all those things, but also subjectively, it's, it resonates with all the stuff I love from cinema. So and uh, does anybody have a counter argument or a slight alteration they want to say about how they determine what their favorite films are or the best films of the year are, decade are? I've been not shy to show my spread list, my spreadsheets to yeah. everyone. Uh, I'm numerically across the board on the films that are my favorite. And so every time we watch a film, I go back and have a rating system, and then it, the spreadsheet puts it through to the best of the certain year and the decade and the genre. So that I don't ever have to like come up with my own thought. I'm so glad we have that on the podcast. If you guys are like, "What's your favorite film?" and I tell Zenith it's one thing, and then I tell Deb it's completely different. You're not like, "Oh, Andy, lying across the board." So your spreadsheet is all math. There's it just, is. It's science. My numeric, uh, numeric <laughs> cinema objectivity. So to speak. Uh, does anybody else have a different way of uh, viewing it? I. Um, was a little distracted, but I, I don't know exactly what you said. But um, <laughs> <laughs> sounds right. Sounds right. Don't worry, it was all nerd. I'll, I'll, I'll show you. I'll show you my spreadsheet. It's pretty awesome. Very tall. I'm down with that. Um, the, uh, the question is difficult because it's so binary. It's black and white. It's yes or no. Best ever. It's bullshit. It doesn't exist. There's is. Could this be any better? No. That's kind of like. And it's time. I mean, I, I develop as a person through time. To so to say that I'm a 20 year old, I would have probably hated this movie. Your perspective. You know, in my 50s, right, yeah. I think this is an awesome movie. Right. So so to 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 have something, you know, you would laugh at, at, at some of the stuff that you loved when you were in your 20s, even when you're teens. I mean, I hated um, um, Chinatown. I saw that when it came out when I was a teenager. Hated it. And I saw it uh, about ten, 10 years ago, and it's one of my favorite movies. Yeah. But there are certain films that I feel like, you know, grip you, like, grip something in the heart of you the second you see them, no matter what stage of life you're in. Like, from Korea. like, for me, like, <laughs> Double Life of Veronique was one of those movies for me when I was, like, 11 years old. And, like, I screened it here, and it's like, I will always, like die for that film and I will die for a lot of the films that I love Please don't. any time of life but I think you're both right there's no reason why both you, you can't like have like there's no reason you can't have a film that sure will for whatever reason that we can't control resonates with you for all periods of time in your life but yeah we are constantly changing and looking at things with different yeah. perspectives like when I first saw before I think the before series is the perfect one for that because they make one every like nine years and always about a different particular point in time in a relationship and depending on exactly where you are in your life and what you've experienced is how much you can relate to those and when I thought before, before Sunrise I was at the exact right age for that 
everything needed to be about romance in my life and optimism and I love that movie so much and then before Sunset came out and I was so angry because like you don't need to make a sequel to this movie yeah. and when I saw it I wasn't in that place I was like I don't like this movie and then I went through life <laughs> and you come back to it later and like this is an amazing movie because now I understand what they're talking about and yeah so I think they're both absolutely right but every now and then you can still have something that's like this is still relevant from when I was a teenager or a kid to when you're whatever age I think what's so astonishing about You Were Never Really Here is that it is a true cinematic art. You know, I think we tend to get so caught up in narrative, uh, especially here in the States when talking about movies, uh, and we, we tend not to focus on what all the other aspects uh, of, the, of the creation. And with You Were Never Really Here, Lisa and I were talking about this as we were walking out, all the story that is happening between the edits, you know, and how those edits and where they edit tell what's going on in that character's head. Um, and the, you know, performance, obviously, uh, Joaquin Phoenix is astonishing in the, in, in the movie. Uh, the direction's top notch. The Johnny Greenwood score is unreal. Cinematography is amazing. Like, why I tend to look at this as one of the great movies is because it cannot, even though there is a narrative version, thank you, Mr. Ames, you cannot do this movie, this experience, in any other format. And that's what I'm so uh, blown away with when I watch this movie in particular. And what I, what I will add to that, Brad, is I give a lot of credit to Lynn Ramsey in this film. Heck yeah. Because you, we've watched a ton of other movies where none of the parts work well together. You can tell that there's someone else... And there was someone else editing, and there was someone else making the music and that sort of thing. But I truly believe she had control of all of that because there were elements that like hit certain beats. There was a, a watch going minute by, by minute by second while he was pumping gas that had the same sound as the gas being pumped and that sort of thing. And I don't think that's pure happenstance. That's Lynn Ramsey understanding what she's put together and seeing the whole project and working collaboratively with everyone involved. Versus just like, oh, we got to drop a song in here. This is the way it's got to work. And then kind of go from there. This was a focused, delivered 87 minutes of cinema. Well, and, and in because uh, we were talking about yesterday um, with some film students, like there are adaptive things with this as well. Like, okay, so for instance, the scene where he goes uh, to the playhouse, as it's called, and rescues her. It's all done through CCTV cameras, and that's not how it was planned at all. They had planned it to shoot it properly. Oh, properly, sorry. You know, yeah. they planned to shoot it traditionally. Um, and on the day, they're just running out of time because they didn't have much money. They were really like crunched for time. It was a difficult film to shoot. The DP was very meticulous about things like like when he's standing on the train station, like it needs to be the exact time of day so he can dip in and out of the mm. sunlight. But even when he's coming out of the darkness into the light, that's tempting towards suicide, essentially, into the tracks. So it was like, yeah. so they were really like struggling with time. And they basically, uh, they could have pushed, like many film productions would have, they're like, we're just going to still do what we had planned, and it's going to be a worse version of that, because at the time. But instead, Lee Ramsey did what I think great directors do, which is like, no, let's throw all of that out, and I'm going to come up with something immediately. And she just told a couple people to go and get CCTV cameras. They put it around. They actually pumped that music out, which is why the editing's kind of weird with the music. It's disjointed, because it's just done for real. And they got a couple of takes, and we're done. And it makes that scene so much better because it's this clinical, disturbing kind of look at it rather than we're in that intimate moment with it. Um, and it's stuff like that which I think you're absolutely right, Andy. Like it's, everything in this film is meticulous, but I think some was planned and some is on just in the moment, which is really why 
yeah, there aren't many directors. I was like, where the name on my chest? You mentioned that scene where she's on, where he's on the train uh, platform. It was this screening that I saw the woman with the black eye mm -hmm. behind the, the element, yeah. and yeah. it adds that layer of depth uh -huh. to the entire story. Oh, and they're all throughout, like all the yeah. women right, that he's right. saved or failed at saving yeah. right. haunt him um, throughout the film. Yeah, there was so much, so much damage, so right. much damage in the film. Yeah. And um, you know, I was wondering if the, if the book um, is is as true is true to the movie, or the movie was true to the book. Um, what struck me, I'm a mental health professional, and um, here's a guy who's so incredibly damaged, and but he's good to his mother. But, um, but he's also trying to kill himself throughout the entire film. He's making these gestures throughout the entire film. And even when he goes to bury, well, to bury, to the sea burial to his mother, he floats himself with rocks. And yet, and yet the end is somewhat hopeful that he meets another damaged person and they kind of bond over their shared experience. And you get the impression that that maybe the story wasn't over, that maybe he, that he didn't kill himself, and that maybe maybe it's possible that there is some sort of a, a life after this. And is that how the book is? In all honesty, I think, um, not to compete books against movies, but I think the movies are much more satisfying story because um, she added a lot of that like the book again it started as a 50 page short and then he turned it into this 96 page one just before the movie was what as it was happening but it's still not the same at all you get a lot more into his head so if you want to understand more about his PTSD and things like that you definitely get that from the book it's a little bit more crime you know thriller kind of feel to it um, but they do not get into her world as much. And I think the real, for me, the really powerful thing about the movie is the parody between the two characters, like you're saying, that they both come from these damaged pasts, but in very different ways. And they both could interpret that in very negative ways, but together they're able to like help, well, possibly help each other and move forward. And, and just the, you know, the final two lines from both of them about it being a beautiful day. So well, maybe tomorrow won't be, but right now, yeah, it is a beautiful day. And I also find the filming techniques of like the fragments and the flashbacks in terms of enhancing the psychological yeah. sense of the lens of trauma. Well, I think they make an interesting decision there because they actually they give him two things to deal with from, from well, they give him many things with his father as well, but like just to do with uh, uh, like when you go into the flashbacks and obviously you have a different color palette for it and you start off like the first time you see them it's just the kicking of the feet in the sand and you don't really understand what's going on. Um, and there's actually, you know, there's two main events he's focusing on, the one with the candy bar and this sort of random shooting for it and how he tried to do something nice but it ended up getting this kid killed and then finding the lorry with all of the bodies inside it, um, which most films would just give you one thing to focus on, like this is where all of his troubles come from. And then this is like, no, there's this and this. You presume there are other things as well because there's little snippets of audible stuff and then his father is a whole different section which sets up why he has the relationship with his mother, which I do think for me personally is, is maybe the best relationship I've ever seen between a son and a mother because you have so much care and nurturing but then she can also like drive him nuts and <laughs> he's sort of mimicking killing her from behind the door but then immediately he's like oh are you okay getting downstairs and that's how relationships are and they're watching Psycho yeah, yeah. <laughs> but she was watching Psycho yeah. Uh, can I just get a like a a visual aid of how many people feel like at the end of the film it does end in hope Oh yeah. oh yeah, not me at all. No, no. <laughs> no, no hope for uh, I don't know. I, I, again, Lisa and I were talking about it, but that image at the end when he shoots himself, 
and everyone's covered in blood. And leading up to that moment, we're hearing everyone talking about The Bachelor and uh, um, allergies. allergies and all of that stuff. And, you know, you look, you sit in a diner, you come to the Alamo, and you look around you, and everyone's going about their lives. And in the middle of this diner are people who've just gone through a traumatic event, but also have lived a life of violence since childhood. And I just, like, the way I come away from that is everyone's covered in blood. You have a great day. We're all surrounded by blood. And we're all culpable in it because we're not paying attention to it, is how I end up reading it. And the girl, if you want to look at her future, you just look at him. And that's how I see it. See, I see it very differently. Sure. (laughs) I see it as... If you want to do reverse gender politics of the time right now, mm-hmm. you could totally say he's just defined by women, like women save him, basically, um, which isn't necessarily a positive mes- message, but people aren't positive. Yes. Complex. I mean, this is a problem with films. It's like we're at a time right now, which is great. We're fighting for lots of positive things, but also the world is complicated and we're all messed up and most of our lives aren't actually governed by healthy pursuits. That's just how it is. So if you're trying to reflect real life, yeah, sure, your characters aren't healthy. You know, that's just how it is. Um, and in this film... His mother is is the guiding force for him. She's his gravity. You know, she's the reason that he basically has is doing any of this. You feel, you know, is, is not has not killed himself yet. And then once she's gone, yeah, he almost does like kill himself. And then he starts to put together that there's something else going on. He wants he still wants revenge for his mother, and then he's denied that, which drives him insane. Um, and he's yeah trying to obviously finish the dot and like well if I can just rescue this last person you get the idea that he's going to do that and then he is going to kill himself that's for me mm-hmm. what I get from the diamond mm-hmm. that was his plan but then when she comes back in and you've just had a conversation of what do we do now and neither of them know and he's like well this is all hopeless this is all pointless but then she comes back and goes but it doesn't matter it's a beautiful day like it doesn't matter what we do next and she's stepping in in that role for him and he'll live for her yeah, yeah. and that's always thing been thing, the sort of battle we have within stories that Lynn Ramsey tells I mean, uh, the only other one we've watched for Film Club, for those who, who have followed within the group, is we need to talk about Kevin, which yeah. allows us to have this conversation of who is the evil in that film? You know, was it uh, Tilda Swinton? Was she a bad mother? Was it uh, the child? And where does that sort of positive, negative thought process sort of go? And I, I was drawing a lot of parallels between Kevin and this in terms of the idea of what Lynn Ramsey's bringing to the table. Uh, terms of what is evil, what's happening around us, who is the catalyst for all of that? Yeah, it, made, it made me concerned for Lynn Ramsey. <laughs> I, hadn't seen, I hadn't seen her other movies, but I did see um, We Need to Talk About Kevin. Right. And that's another very deep and very multi-layered and very disturbing film. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but she's okay, right? <laughs> I mean, we haven't checked today. <laughs> and she's not on Twitter, so it's hard. Um, everyone should also watch Morgan Callum. That was the second film. Yes. That's my personal second favorite from her. Does that take place in uh, That's in Britain. Yeah, it, well, sort of. It goes into Europe as well. Um, I don't want to spoil anything about it. It's very simple, like a very simple movie. But it's it, it's not quite as emotionally wrecking, I guess. As is that Samantha movie. Morton? Is it yes. a lead in okay. It's a one for one. Uh, as a, a lot of you mentioned when we went around the table, you know, you were never really here. Is it's it's a lot, uh, and it's a lot to yeah. process immediately. Uh, did anybody come away from it just really 
Uh, I mean, obviously we're all disturbed by it because it's filled with disturbed, disturbing imageries. But was there anything in the film that challenged you in a way or that you would challenge its placement in the film? Or is everyone, like, it all makes sense to me. I don't know so much about challenging me, mm-hmm. but that scene where he's in the water with his mom and he's saying goodbye, he's burying her, and thinking about, you know, do I want to go with her or do I want to live again? I I just want to go home and draw that. Like, mm-hmm. it yeah. was such a captivating scene. You know, and it pulls you in, and you feel his emotions, what he's going through in that scene. It was, I mean, was it, was, it was beautiful. It right. was amazing. With the image right after that, of the mother transforming into the girl, yeah. Yeah. it was that, was that transition of his, his need to care for her. Yeah. yeah. Give him purpose right. still. Yeah. And the lighting. Which again, that wasn't how they intended to shoot that. It was going to be more complicated, but they ended up having to focus it. And I think the DP made the right decision of let's have all that negative space, which is much more symbolic. And it does really come off as a baptism. Yeah. No, absolutely. Renewed. Absolutely. No, that's And I love that. Yes. And it's already done for him when he gets there. And I, that, that's, that's just one of them. There are some really cool reversals in that movie. It's a really, I mean, like when you find out that it's the governor, you're like, woo, you know, surprise. But that reversal of him near the end, where she has agency and she's, she's taking care of the problem uh, in a terrifying way, yeah. to the point where she's eating her, you know, which in the reverse yeah which in the reverse of everything else is like you you we don't know but it's hard to believe she would have done that if she hadn't had that first interaction with Joe like he brought that sort of violent idea into her life and then she brings it back into his life and there's kind of this cycle of yeah they help each other like they bring each other out of the darkness now we were talking about this film uh, yesterday and you had made a comment that I didn't explore you had said this film has one of the best callbacks uh, maybe I misread you know you have a weird accent so I couldn't <laughs> uh, but do you remember what you were thinking about when, when you said that no I say a lot of stupid things um, callback was it to the entrance of the house how he enters I don't remember I, don't, I, I was wondering what that was I, I, gonna, think I was watching it, it and know. then I was uh, going to ask you that question so I did it on, on uh, yeah, perfect. the, well, the, the podcast so throw you under the bus with the with the bubbles in the water Yes. Counting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, that... I'm not sure, but I mean that is absolutely like the counting is, is crucial in it, and, and yeah. it's only even on like the third time watching it where you, where I kind of start noticing the transition of power <clears throat> with the counting. Like again, yeah, when he's underwater, it's him counting, and then it turns into her counting, and that's the thing that they share in common, yeah. but for very different reasons why they use that mechanic uh, to cope. There's, um, yeah, there's also the you know the moment when he does get to the governor's house and he starts to walk through the house. And we see the, him back in the closet. We see the mom on the couch. We see yeah. the dad with the towel and the marine jeans. You know, uh, marine jeans. They're not. My dad would be so mad. <laughs> uh, the dress uniform on there, and, and like, you know, all these little moments just following him to this one moment. I love those callbacks, those flashbacks. And I love that we got out of the city for it. I mean, it was nice to finally push the boundaries of where we were. I mean, we often think of New York as. 
apologizing if it's sort of gritty, dark, uh, you know, murder happening yeah. in that sort of place. Uh, I thought it was quite important to see that it, it happens to those who are, you know, uh, struggling and those who are living the, the best, biggest life possible. Would you, would you call this a, is this a small movie that focuses on a singular human experience or is there a, a bigger commentary about culture and America and all of that going on through it. I mean, I think it's very easy because I think, I, in all honesty, like I think the more you focus well on a singular experience, the more you are talking about the entire culture. Um, so that's why I think it's very easy for people to get debates about films where maybe, in all honesty, if the creators were being honest, they didn't think of any of that stuff. But because they did one little thing really well, you could read into a whole, you know, world. Um, it's the Jeffrey Epstein movie. But I think that's an average. <laughs> I think that's an average answer. I think when you talk about Lynn Ramsey, though. I mean, when I think about that scene where the two guys are in her house, in his mom's house, and the last one is crawling across, and you have a re-throwback to the hands again that we just saw. You're getting nervous that something's going to happen to his hands. And then he turns over, and that to me is one of the most powerful scenes, just lying there watching the man die next to him. But, but there's this, a, a moment, there's almost several beats, where the first beat is you think they're just gangster guys. They're suited up. They're, they are what they are. Then it pans out a little bit further, and you get the United States pin. And you're, I almost was like, when I saw it for the first time, I was just like, oh, my God, there's a higher purpose to all of this that's going on. Then we get the governor mentioned after all of that. That's, I don't know if that's – I would – be remiss if Lynn Ramsey was sitting here to be like that was a, a cautious error or that was an error. No, no, no. no. I, think, I don't think, think it was an error. Some... But I don't know if there is concern about that. It's one of those things where, and, it, and if I have any criticisms with the movie, it is slightly that it is um, the fact that the senators and governors and policemen, and it's like it, it, it's a little too heavy-handed for me with with that pointedness of it on the scale. Um, and there's one shot that I would 100% take out of the movie because it's too much. Okay, well, tell us the shot. It's the shot of uh, when we're introduced to the governor in his house, but before he's dead and he's blowing out a candle and he's got these photos of the young girls. It's like, yeah. that's just cartoonish. Like, that's not, like, that's like he's a villain and you can see he's naked from the side yeah. of his back. And it's like, this is not, this film's better than that. Um, so that shot I would 100% take out. Interesting. Do I agree with that? <laughs> I don't, but this is the thing. I really hate anybody just being one thing in any movie. Sure. And what's so great about it, this film, is that there are, like, you can totally look at Joe as a villain if you want to, you know. Oh, yeah, look yeah. At yeah. Hero, and you can look at all the characters like that, other than when you get to the governor, you're like, no, he's just, he's the evil well, governor. I mean, I mean, with Joe, I think every time I watch it, I struggle with how do I feel about this guy? Um, you know, because we, you know, talking, Billy, about, like, larger themes, I feel like You Were Never Really Here is having a conversation with revenge cinema in a lot of ways, because to Al's point, we're raised on, like, Joe's going to get in that house, and he's going to start cracking some skulls, because all these bastards deserve it, uh, but Lynn Ramsey denies us all that stuff, and, and in denying that stuff is, like, saying to you, the audience member, like, why would you think that? Why should it go that way? Well, that's what makes it feel like a, like a very strong commentary on American affection to violence. That's, I don't know, that's, that's maybe why that stands out to me. It's like Haneke's funny games in reverse. Right? Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, <laughs> uh, what have we not we talked about? about I need to think about that also. Yeah, uh, that's what I love about movies and conversations. I do want to talk about how to introduce him because yes. I actually I actually spent quite a while with my DP when we we're working on 
hopeful future projects, studying the first sort of 11 minutes of many films that we admire to see how you introduce your lead character. Why 11 minutes? Well, it depends, <laughs> but like between how, I think for this film specifically it was 11 minutes okay. until you actually get a full proper lit shot of his face and then the title comes up. Um, and up until that point, it's this gradual reveal of him and it's very fascinating because um, it's very meticulous. It's dealing with no shot is wasted, you know, from just the stuff on the bed, all these things. And when the first time you're watching it, part of your impression is, is he a serial killer? Like, you're not sure what he's doing. And, and that idea of, like, burning the photo, putting the Bible on top of the burning photo, there's a lot of, like, symbolism. And then for me, like, that's such a telling little thing that you don't need to do at all, but it tells you so much about him, is he starts opening the hotel room door, still haven't seen him properly, just his hand and close-ups, and then this woman walks by and he just, like, keeps it shut until she walks by, so then he can leave, which immediately tells you so much about, like, what he's doing and what he's like. And then the camera has this wonderful moment when he goes to the lobby and the camera is like in his POV. Yeah. It kind of creeps around to see the police cars, retracts back, but as it retracts back, they placed Phoenix in front of it. So now you're no longer in his POV and you're gonna like start following him. And then the pumping music kicks in and then they deny him as soon as he leaves and the alarm bell like goes off, you know? Um, and then he's kept in like shrouded darkness and it's such a fascinating tapestry. But they're like, we're gonna give you all the pieces and they've already given you the countdown, they've already given you audible bits when it was like dark and the bubbles from the border. We're giving you flashes of him, you know, in the paper, the, sorry, the plastic bag over his head and his coping mechanism. They're giving you kind of everything. But it's just up to you if you notice it and, you know, if you're gonna put the time in to like put that together. Right, the first watch, uh, you're piecing puzzles together. And on the second and third watch, you're going like, oh, look how masterfully yeah. uh, it's being scripted and you're not even aware of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and to do the title, by the way, like that, when you're just in his head and the guy's mouthing. Like, yeah. 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 Well, that's another part where I go back to the greatness of it, him singing to the beat of the score and how beautifully that all blends together to the almost, it seems flawless, but you know it's well choreographed. Like, I don't know, there's just something chilling about that, that opening. What else have we have not covered yet? What, do we, what is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to talk about? Because we have eighteen people, surely someone has hated it. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I just really didn't say, like it. Piggybacking on the how she's almost empowered to kill the, the monster herself. Yeah. Um, which I thought was brilliant the way that was done. Uh, it, it actually reminded me of one of my former favorite movies of the decade, and um, that was. Um, the professional, mm -hmm. uh, where he has that relationship, who we, and he himself is damaged, yep. and he has this relationship with this girl that's lost her family and has already damaged herself, and he gives her that empowerment to, you know, slay her monster, so to speak. Yep. And I, I saw some similarity in that in that same kind of relationship that they had. Yeah, uh, the professional is like it's uh, yeah, in Europe is called Leon, mm -hmm. and it's. It's, it's, it's been one of my favorite films ever. Yeah. And I was just reading this big story. I don't know how many people know about how that film was written. Do you want to get into that? I don't know. No. Yeah, I mean, you can. Yeah, <laughs> I can do it. Do, you can do it quickly. It's kind of sticky. It's, it's very strange because it's a Lou Besson film. Um, and it's actually based on a true story about him and who ended up being his wife and the mother to his first child, who he met her when, he, when she was 12. And then they got together when she was 15. Um, and it's, it's very dark. And when you and she's an actress, she was like one of the two leads in Switchblade Romance, uh, High Tension, school in America. Uh, yeah, uh, great movie. Yeah, she's she's the one who's taken basically like the yeah. I don't want to spoil that movie. <laughs> um, 
yeah, there's lots of interesting stuff if you look up the professional online and hear the true stories that it's all based on. She was like, yeah, that was 100 percent our life, and he wrote it about our love affair, essentially. And Gary Oldman was phenomenal. Oh yeah. He's a pretty good actor. Well, it took a turn. It took a turn. Uh, uh, well, so, but but at, to Atlas' point, you know, like, did anybody really dislike the movie or is struggling to really praise it the way that the rest of us are? Someone has no, to. but I do want to talk about CCTV. CCTV? Yeah. Sure. I thought that a lot of what happens in that part of the movie could only really have been digestible with that sort of remove and change of point of view. Because that to me was the most devastating scene when that little girl walked out of that bedroom. Yeah. Yeah. And he knew he wasn't there to save her, too. Yeah. Well, and she doesn't run away. It makes it both more chilling and more digestible at the same time. I actually quite like the way that the CCTV makes it look because you get to see an image of him as a faux white hat sort of crusading through this place. Uh, but then I like that shot where she's still sitting there in the chair at the end of that sequence because it sort of gives you know truth to the lie of his like white-hattedness action as he's going through this place. Absolutely. I would like to talk to the young actresses in that scene you know, because I am always concerned about exploitation of child actors, and you know, she comes out of that door, and there's a naked dude right there. You know, I don't know. It's a lot, lot to put on a, a little kid actor. But I never feel like the film itself is exploitative in any way. Well, it's interesting because, like, I do think if it was directed by a male, it would be applauded for many of the decisions that she makes. But I do think there's in, quite, in particular something would be called out that no one ever talks about, which is like once he rescues her. It's very easy to go, cool, let's put on a jumper. Like, let's just put on some more clothes, let's desexualize you immediately. But instead, Lynn Ramsey, who is just, she's quite a sensual director in many interesting ways, not normal titillating ways. Like, she keeps her in that nighty. And there's a shot of, like, the droplets running down, like, her chest and stuff like that, which is, like, there's no need for these shots at all, really. Um, and I feel it works in the context of who she is and what she's doing, but I do think if a male director had done them, you'd be like, why don't we change what she's wearing immediately? Yeah, I mean, the way I would answer that is you can never, you don't want to take away what is going on in this movie. Like, what is, this girl is being passed between two uh, politicians and many, many men. Um, and I, I think the way that she doesn't, the way she doesn't clean that scene up immediately is very important. Yeah, no, no, I agree. But I just think it's something that, yeah, yeah. with a different director, sure. we would be questioning. What's the Antoine Fuqua version? Nice discussion to have about children overall within this film. Uh, From not just what we see with Mr. Phoenix's uh, young uh, life, but also with the young child who takes the candy bar to the young child that sees him on the street uh, and is frightened by that, to the story of, I'm going to lose that girl's name uh, that he names the boat after, but... Josephine. Uh, Josephine. To the story of Josephine in there, which obviously he has lost her, or at least portrays that moment that he's lost. So you've got this idea of like... And she's like in a wheelchair in one of the photos. Right, right, right. Or something has happened, yeah. so to speak. And so 
and then you've got that scene near the very end where we're backtracking, so to speak, up on how they've caught up to Mr. Phoenix's career or his his life, so to speak, of. You've got the gun towards the head of the young boy and that sort of thing as well. There's a lot of that as it carries throughout the film. I think we focus a lot on the young woman because of the overall story arc, but there's that's within it all over the place as we sort of watch it, which is pretty interesting to sort of look at bigger stories as a whole. When we're first introduced to Josephine's dad, the guy there, I mean, his nose is bleeding. We don't really have a story for that. Yeah. We have to create our own idea of why his nose is bleeding. What's happened to cause that kind of go from there? Which, following on from that, I'm intrigued, because the one thing I find people argue about the most in this film is whether the senator, her father, kills himself from guilt, as we're alluded to in that one shot, but that is also in Phoenix's mind. Like, that's him right. putting together, oh, hang on, he was actually implicit in this as well. He was doing this as well. The guilt got to him. He then took himself out. There is a moment when you see the scene where he says, I'll see you at 3 a.m. in this motel, where the senator swallows, and you get this idea of, okay, he knows already that he's going to kill himself and he yeah. won't be there at 3 a.m. But then there are a lot of other things in the film which allude to, no, he was taken out. Yeah, I, 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 I lean to that. Yeah. 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 yeah, I lean to the before. Oh, really? Yeah. And on repeated viewings, when you think of that, like, I think there's quite a lot of elements to back it up. Because huh. he even asked the guys on the floor, like, did you do this? And they never they never answered that question at all. Um, and there's just a lot about it where I just feel that it's, it is an admission of, like, yeah, because I think it's certain that they're trading them back and forth. Um, and there's just this, I don't know, again, I just, I have faith in the Ramsey in my characters more than one level. And to have someone who's going through that, but then also hates himself and then becomes guilt-ridden and then decides I need to make amends so you go and help these people rescue her and I'm going to kill myself basically so where, where do we see this film in 10 years? the National Film Registry on Netflix on Netflix <laughs> it's there already it's, no it's so, on Amazon it's Amazon oh it's Amazon Netflix everything yeah yeah or Disney Plus but do you think uh, it's going to be 10 years from now Criterion. Oh yeah, I National think without a doubt. And how will that life? What that will that life look like? Like, is it someone stumbling upon this film haphazardly? Do you think that there will continually be discussions about this film, I or think. is it uh, we have to wait till Lynn Ramsey makes another one go until we talk about it again? Uh, it's always hard to say like how long a film will stand in the public consciousness, but I think it's up to people like you and Al and us yeah. to keep the conversation going. That when a movie like Joker comes out, you go, yeah, 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 yeah. But did you see this thing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and like with Joker's release, uh, you know, say what you will about that movie, that certainly caused a lot of people to watch You Were Never Really Here. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not enough people, but a lot of people. Uh, yeah, I think there's a life to it. And I don't know if I would necessarily see watching this at home on a 32-inch TV screen. I've done it, Andy. experience. And it's pretty damn good. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> no, that's great to hear, because I, I sort of think you lose a little bit of something with the music, with the, the unknowns going on behind it, and that sort of thing as well. Are you saying people have to come to the Alamo to have the full experience? No, 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 no. no. But I, I do think this screen. was... We talk about this sometimes, but I do think this was a main movie made for movies seen yeah. in a theater. Yeah. But yes. because of the Absolutely. audible experience, right. I think. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's great to see anything big on the screen, but yeah, it's those little details, like I think many of us are talking about coming up, like little things in the in the design of the sound, yeah. like you just don't notice yes. when you watch it. Agreed, out. agreed. I would always take a movie in a theater, and I, I think any movie is better in, in, in the theater. But I also imagine uh, 14-year-old Brad uh, stumbling upon this film and having his mind destroyed uh, and then falling into the black hole of Lynn Ramsey watches and just discovering this tremendous 
you know, swath of filmography. Yeah. Um, followed by Followed by cat videos. Yes, yeah, so <laughs> yes, I'm, and I'm excited about that. Details with this film that have like stuck with me for like two years. Like when we had to stream Jelly Beans, I could not even remember how that was in context. And the moment he was in. Um, the office and grabs a handful. I was like, oh, I can't wait until the the scene where he crushes it with yeah, his yeah, finger. Yeah. The destruction like, of the beam. yeah. yeah He's like, oh, I found a green one. And I, there's little moments like that that have just resonated with me. Even when he goes to the governor's house and it's just like a stagnant shot and he's like walking diagonally towards the house. Yeah. Like, I have not gotten those visions out of my yeah. And that tells you so that. much about him with the green, because he's like, yeah, I, I want the green jelly bean, and yeah. as soon as he has it, it's the only one he destroys. Right. Yeah. Which yeah. tells you everything. Uh, yeah. <laughs> picking up on that idea, what Andy just said, Al, how many times have you watched this movie? I don't know. I mean, maybe... Maybe only, I mean, again, we're talking about it. I'm very precious with my very favorite things, music and films. I don't like to overdo them nowadays. I did in my early 20s, but now it's like, no, I want to keep them precious. I maybe watched it six times, but I've watched, yeah, the opening about 40 times because we dissected it for, for yeah, purposes. And what, what is the value of revisiting film? Because I know some people don't like to dissect I struggle with it. I absolutely, I mean, I, I looked at me, but it's, there's no question about it. I have... Film Club has helped me revisit things that I would not have in the past. And we are coming into a year where I'm going to start showing some older titles. I think the merger that just occurred has made me frightened that we will be forgetting about some of the uh, older titles. Uh, What's Die Hard? What's that? What's Die Hard? Yeah. (laughs) I'll let everyone else talk about that. But uh, it it has made me want to revisit and relook at some of the things and experience it on a screen like we just did with. With, a, with an audience and I, that happened during our Denzel Washington series like, I think I became yeah. more involved because I could watch the lineage of this actor from square yeah. one to yeah. square nine yeah. in a way that I, I don't think I've ever done that before and so uh, yeah. yeah you'll look at me now but maybe a year from now maybe I won't have that look anymore right? I'm just having a good time, Andy. Yes. You asked about the point of revisiting, and um, <clears throat> kind of just as we grow and as we change, you know, our perception of ourselves changes, and everything that we think is really just a reflection of a, of our perception of self in relation to that thing. So, when we revisit a movie and we've changed, it's about how we see ourselves. So, revisiting is important. I mean, you don't have to do it because then we would all be screwed because we don't. Um, But I think it's helpful. It's important you learn about yourself. You learn more about yourself and in your relation to the world. But I think also with time, you appreciate things in a different way as well. Um, Last fall, we had Matthew Modine here and saw Full Metal Jacket, which when I was a kid was one of my favorite films about Vietnam. And Seeing it on the big screen, though, and hearing him talk about the filming of it and some of the stories behind the scenes, and seeing it in a whole different perspective, it was amazing to me. Like I was like, "Wow!" I, I saw the entire film completely different from how I'd seen it right at least a dozen times. I love that idea of changing perspective. Um, when when I go to rewatch a movie, I find that I will often deliberately try and watch it either from a different character's perspective or with like a different framework in mind as I'm thinking about it 
because like Heather says, that's that's what helps me explore things and me and, and the movie and kind of the relationship uh, between those two things. As it's you kind of change. a Jungian gestalt, what you're saying is that so in dreams we are everything in that dream. So putting yourself in the perspective of that uh, character or that item or the music or the whatever yeah. and seeing it from those eyes rather than you see, you know what you think of the character outwardly being that character yeah, and, exactly. and what they think is I, I think it's very instructive yeah. I think it's also the where we choose to watch our films we often decide that we're going to just try to see as many films as possible versus the opportunity to truly dissect and enjoy those films uh, I think <laughs> <laughs> that's my one breaking point. <laughs> but I, I like each of our film screenings that we come to. Like I will now always associate you are never really here to a white being here and the experience of that, just like I did with Moji, just like we've done with all of these times. I mean, I will always associate the spring double feature with wearing robes with the Benson Moorhead guys and that sort of thing. There's there's just connectiveness to it, and there was. Uh, you know, I think about our film club screening that we watched recently, um, uh, Tokyo Drifter, where we all left the screening, unbeknownst to me, singing the song yeah. within the hallway of the Alamo Drafthouse. And it's okay. like, that to me is what I'll carry with me with that film, yeah. you know, versus... Yeah, for sure. I would open that question up to the group is, when you, when you encounter a favorite movie, do you remember the movie or do you remember the experience of watching it that first time? What's the thing that sits with you? For me personally, it's a random magical thing. Uh, it, and it's it's the same, my relationship with art is I mean, the same as with people. You know, it's like, uh, and, and there's no judgment, it's whatever you need in, in your life. You know, some people want it just what's entertaining films, and that's completely understandable, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, but normally I'll see a parody of that within the people they like to keep around them as well. Um, and I think how you kind of come to those movies is like some of the movies is exactly what Andy's saying for me. Some of my best experiences are because I saw them in a group of people and it was a dynamic you could never possibly have had in any other way. And maybe you only heard 20% of the movie because everyone's cheering and shouting so much. Right? Yeah. But it created something really special that you'll keep with you because that's an experience. But then, yeah, like I have films like one of the most affecting films for me was when I was 17 and I hadn't watched horror films at all and I watched Night of the Living Dead on my own, on a little tiny TV I'd smuggled into my school with headphones on, terrified someone was going to walk in through the door. And it blew my mind because I didn't realize that genre films got to break all the rules. And the ending of that movie was like, you don't get to do this, this is incredible. Um, and that wouldn't have maybe happened to me if I had seen it with a bunch of people. It was a very personal, one-on-one -on -one thing. Um, and I think that's the same thing with people, some people we mean. It's like you need to meet them in a the crowd to have that. <laughs> I see maybe you whether you're in the hall by this like if you're on the streets or if you're in the alley. I'll scream at you. What I'm saying is don't scream at you in the alley when you're alone. Never scream. So we're we're hitting our hour mark here. Halfway. Yeah, halfway, halfway there. I just want to throw it out there one more time. Anything that we haven't covered about you were never really here that you want to talk about before we wrap up? Just one more thing. All right, thing Heather and then Lisa. Yes? Very quick. Um, I like the, back to the score again. I know I keep going back to the score, but uh, I find that in a lot of films, and it pisses me off that the music is there to tell you how to feel. And in this movie, it doesn't. 
it just yeah. like once again it's its own entity and it, it informs itself it's it's part of it in such an meshed way it's not like a a, a cube and I love that so when we went to university yesterday, we were talking to some of the composing students there, like the music students, and that's exactly one of the reasons um, that I was talking about this movie, but other films as well. And then films, because some of them, two of them came up to me, we were talking about you know John Williams and like things like this. And I was like, we're in a bit of a different time now. It's like film scores used to be a character, and they used to take over and kind of like really be a huge presence. And now it's all about just keep them like under the surface, and you don't notice they're there. And it makes me sad because that can be useful, but it's lovely also for a score to be a character. And yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And this. The score is 100% a character, but without it being an obnoxious, like, here's a theme tune for you. Right. It's like, no, you are inside his head because we can't give you the pages on this book which tell you literally what's inside his head. When you think of a movie that has that kind of score, you remember what song that is. You can sing it. Yes. You can't sing that. No. And you, and <laughs> That's I'll, a well, hammer uh, on a on a chord. You although know, there is one bass line I do. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You, um, you get what I mean. If no, you're absolutely, 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 it's not a theme. You know, that yeah. song at the diner, like, I. Which you, which again, then you go to like Johnny Greenwood's uh, uh, Phantom uh, Thread in mm -hmm. the same year, mm -hmm. and it's this gorgeous, lustrous, just yeah. like string section, and it's and it's just like the John Barry of Out of Africa kind yes. of. Yeah. But which also gets you under Daniel Lee, uh, well, under both of their skins, like in, in that film. Um, which I think is wonderful. Thank you for that. Uh, awesome. Lisa. Well, mine was related to that topic, and that was the sort of placement of Barry. Now, obscure popular music from a time, you know, from like 50s through the 70s, that I think a lot of a lot of audiences, you know, younger people now are not, are not familiar with those songs. You know, I've never been to me is during the you know, the scene where the the killer is dying on the, on the kitchen floor. It's such a crazy, obsequious pop song, but the lyrics are weirdly edgy. <laughs> if you listen to them or read the lyrics of that song, it's very odd. Um, I wonder in her choices, like why she decided to pick these certain songs, like because they're, they're they're interesting, but they're not necessarily uh, they don't necessarily land, I think, with your typical audience member. Yeah, I, I read it as a, some of them specifically, not all of them, were children's songs. And so it ties into the idea of the what the, the role of child within this film. So and I think I think I mean who knows? Like so let's all just speak on behalf of Lynn Ramsey. Yeah. But like yeah, She's I think it's part of what you're saying. I think there's definitely a commentary on Americana, which particularly for British people, there's a very particular like that's part of how we romanticize some of those things, and the and the juxtaposition of the violence with the '50s kind of dream of America. Um, and then also, for being honest, didn't have much money, so like they gotta like have to be careful with what they pick, and the older songs are gonna be cheaper, so that will play into decisions. I'm sure they were still very meticulous on yeah which ones, but you cut off a lot immediately of what you can have access well, and, to. And if they're children's songs, like when he's laying on the floor with the man who's dying and holds their hand, and they're both singing the song, it's pro it's a song that they knew from their childhood, right. and it kind of grounds back into like the aftermath of this violence and what their their backstories were and how they grew up to be in this, like having a similar upbringing and then ending up in this space together. Yeah. So. Yeah. And one thing I just also want to mention that 
every time I see it, I, I forget how impactful it is to me, but even just, like, the makeup of after he has to remove his tooth, like, they could have just made him look black and blue, but the fact that his speech changes and his face is so swollen and it's so authentic, and I know they probably had a very small budget, but to be so genuine to, like, the effect that that can have and how it can change someone's appearance and just articulation like every time I see his like swollen face after that moment I'm like this is amazing I don't know why it sticks with me so much but I love that choice in their makeup I agree with you completely you did remind me of one thing that I wanted to see because it doesn't matter at all to the plot and I do think it's it's not a failure on it but it's an interesting decision of how they did that because it's actually a bullet that he's taking out it's not oh, his it's tooth. Oh, yeah, no, but he holds his tooth. No, it's, no, it's a bullet. It's a bullet. Yeah, yeah. 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 first time I watched it, I thought oh, it was his tooth as well, and it was only on repeating viewings, and then they do have a bit of VO yeah. that they say over the top, like, later, like, very quiet, about, like, it just took a bullet out of my mouth. But it's, like, really quiet. And it's kind of weird, because it's, like, it doesn't matter either way. Yeah. And so why didn't you make it a little bit more obvious it was a bullet? Like, I don't know. I also <laughs> love that, that uh, he had this bruised shoulder. From the beginning, the little, yeah. The little girl had a bruise on her same shoulder. Yeah. She was sitting in the car. Yeah, that's right. That, that was it. That's those little touches, like getting the sodas I, and stuff like that. <laughs> I was just going to say it, and uh, she, she got, got to it before me, but when he's laying on the ground and the music's playing, and here's this guy who may or may not have killed his mom, yet they hold hands as the man's dying. And I just thought it was such a great moment because... Even all of us, good, bad, evil angels, we all want someone there at the end. That's just this innate human thing that you want someone there holding your hand again no matter what. And the fact that that scene was... Yeah, Again, brilliant. It's the best scene in the movie, in yeah. because it sums up everything it's trying to talk about. It's like here's the randomness and the violence, but we also have to be empathetic to the fact that he's obviously done terrible things, and in his mind, he's done it always to terrible people. But they still have family and loved ones and other people who are going to miss them. Yeah, he's um, a professional doing his job. Exactly. <laughs> we have had a few questions on Facebook. Okay. Oh. Uh, from folks who are following. One being, would you just suggest this movie to a friend that came up? But not knowing sort of the background, what if the friend had PTSD? Would this be something that you would suggest or or, or put in there? Uh, and then uh, Leanne was talking a lot about sort of the idea of what personal triggers are when it comes to sort of films of this nature, uh, which is an interesting conversation to have, especially since there is so much violence. That's a long conversation, uh, but I mean, I do think like this is not a film for everybody. This is a film I recommend to everyone that asks. No, I'm completely yes, serious. Yeah, when fine. they ask me, like, five films that are going to not be, you know, out of the box, what I would find on Netflix, what do you recommend? And this is always one of the films I recommend. And I highlight the the security footage as him going through the house as, like, a masterpiece of editing and bringing you into his character, as well as the fact that, Yes, it shows you the horrors of this job, but it does show you that what what happens after those kills and once someone just has to sit with that energy. And I do recommend this movie all the time. And I recommend it as well. I do have friends who have suffered from sexual violence, and I, I think to recommend a film like this to them, you have to have a much longer conversation. They have to be in a certain place. I think it is very triggering. Um, 
But like, I, I think I think you need to know you're the person you're talking to. Mm-hmm. I think it's a yeah, it's a case by case basis because yeah. it can be like any film. It can be harming and it can be healing for those people. And films are like are like this. For some people, I think it could be it could be a turning point for them to see something like that and relate to something and then like help them. But yeah, other people could spiral. I'll say for anything with a trigger warning, and this is a personal thing for me, just leave. Like, yeah. if you're watching something and you're struggling with it, it's like a relationship with someone. You don't need to be in that. You can go. It's okay. Don't get. Don't be a hero and get through it and then be scarred for life. It's not worth it. Like, just go. Yeah. Right? It's, just, it's just a movie or it's just a book. And if it's not speaking to you in a way that you are enjoying that conversation, then stop that conversation. With the PTSD, uh, I have a feeling that only those who are experiencing it at that time understand what they're going through. You can't really judge what somebody else's PTSD is going to do and what's going to affect them or what triggers that there may be. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I always find that, like, I'm very happy we all care about each other nowadays, but I do find it frustrating when they come out. And I've been in movies where they come out and go, trigger warning, you're going to see this, this, this. (laughs) So now I'm waiting for those scenes. And it's like, everybody's been through something, and it doesn't downplay any of the terrible things people go through. And most experiences are relative. Like, I have friends whose fathers literally murdered their mothers in front of them, and they're as well adjusted to their life as people who got divorced who are, like, destroyed by the fact that their parents got divorced. And it doesn't downplay. It's just that it's all case by case of how people are able to adapt to this stuff. I'll I'll take the contrary on that. Yeah, I'll take the contrary on that because I... I think that trigger warnings ultimately at the front of something become such a very small, short experience that it's such an easy thing to overlook if you don't. I don't care what the trigger warnings are, so I'm just going to turn my eyes and not listen. And I think it's such a small like acquiescence of 30 seconds of time for somebody who might in that moment for them say, I don't want to watch this scene in a movie because I'm going to find that too emotionally overwhelming to handle. And I think it's... Because it's so easy, I would much rather them be happy with their experience and give up that that warning time. And maybe I get exposed to something like, oh, I feel like maybe this is poor, but... Yeah, I mean, that's my point of view also. I'm just asking where the gray line is, that's all. Because at some yeah. point, then you have to have a line. I don't believe like, in a gray line. I don't, not I don't, don't, I don't believe anymore. in a gray line I, I think, I think they can, <laughs> Well, then you have to say everything in every movie. Because yeah. And I would say that everyone should, if you have those issues, yeah. kidsinmind.com <laughs> is a great website exactly. that yeah. will help you get through some of those things. But knowing people who have anxieties of certain very specific things, uh, even researching that stuff, even going to kids in mind, can can hurt those people. Now, as somebody who's totally well adjusted and perfectly normal, <laughs> has no problems this whatsoever inside my oh. mind, oh. I have no problem uh, sacrificing uh, knowledge to a trigger hey, warning. Brad, yes. Can I interject here because yeah. there is that you know the rating. Yeah. It tells you what's in it. It, so it tells you some things that are. But it in. says it'll say sexual violence. It'll say yeah. these things, and and I feel you know what's really what's that different? There's there is no difference. So yeah, you know, and and he's right. If, well, if that's if, what I'm saying, he if, is right. If you don't care what's in it, then great. But for people you who know, need it, who need it, literally need it, then. I think of cinema as something that's supposed to teach us things, and I'm a big believer in the community experience of watching movies together and talking about it, and I think to, like, facilitate conversations and engaging with art in a way that's helpful to people, 
I am happy to sacrifice something to, to open up that conversation to more people and make it easier for people to participate. No, no, no I, like, let's be clear. I 100% agree. Al, why, why do you hate people who don't? <laughs> <laughs> I need to be clear. Most of the people in my life are like people who have tried to commit suicide many times. People have had terrible, terrible experiences. Yeah. Lots of child sexual abuse. And I have long conversations with these people because I care so much about it. And I have certain things in my history with it as well. Um, so I completely understand and I completely agree. The problem is with any of this stuff is at some point it becomes legislation. At some point yes. there is a great line of we're yes. deeming your, sure. your issues as worthy and your issues aren't worthy and that pisses me off. Because I, it, I it is relative to what that experience did to you whatever age it happened. But I think and the I answer to that is a wide open door. Just but then it, it, but then it literally is someone coming out. And I mean, I'm not talking about, yeah, certificates where it says, like, here are some highlight words. See that. Maybe go, okay, maybe I don't want to be cautious. Maybe I want to ask somebody or whatever. But someone walking out in front of the cinema yes. and going, this is a scene you're going to see. It might upset yes. you. Feel free yeah. to leave. And I'm like... That's why that, previews that are so good. At, uh, in a film club, we get uh, to see the previews of things. So if there's something that's going to affect me and my PTSD, I'm going to see at least a glimpse of it in that preview if the preview is honest about the film that we're about to see. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. Kidsinmind.com. We'll get you through it. That'll do it. That'll work. Well, I mean, it's a damn good site. Like, it's, it's, I, I'm a, I do want to warn everyone that the cat videos we saw in that trailer were from last year's cat video fest. Oh. Oh. No, no spoilers. So we don't know how many of those cats are still alive. That's right. All right. So, wrapping up the conversation, I want to give everybody the opportunity to uh, point our listeners to any social media feeds that you have, any projects you want to do. Does anyone want to share? We've got another hour, as Al said. Here you go, Brad. On yes, Friday, I'm giving an eight-hour all-day presentation on complex PTSD and structural dissociation and the neuroscience of all of that. So, if anybody's interested. Eight hours? Well, it's an hour and a half, two hours in the morning, and then three hours in the afternoon, and there's breakfast and lunch in there as well. So, breakfast and lunch. You know, bathroom breaks, you coffee, food. water. Yeah. I mean, what? Is lunch provided on, like, a certain situation? <laughs> Are you bringing sandwiches? Thank you, Heather. You're welcome. Anybody else want to share any projects or anything they want to talk about? You can uh, email me at heatherleachlpc at gmail.com. He asked me, um, so Heather, H-E-A-T-H-E-R-L-E-A-C-H-L-P-C at gmail.com for more information. Please. Good. Any other shares? I just rolled up the tongue. <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to tell you right now, on March 9th, uh, here at the Alamo Draft House, we are going to be meeting again up at the projection booth like we are today to talk about Denzel Washington Month. Uh, right. That was all February long and deciding which was the best Denzel Washington movie, the definitive uh, classic of his films. Why is every film going to be in competition with each other? <laughs> you made it that way. <laughs> you I think we're going to also talk about the experience of watching nine Denzel Washington yes. films uh, and uh, what we've witnessed within those nine films through the growth of Denzel over the years. Uh, we kept with the older Denzel titles. We didn't go too new. So it's a chance to sort of see his foundation and where we see him today. And I think it is really special to be able to meet up here with everybody and talk the films we've just experienced and get a new perspective on those films. Uh, I'm glad to see that we all seem to really enjoy You Were Never Really Here. Yeah. I'm going to say it is one of the best films of the decade. Oh, I think it's one of the best films. 
that year Paddington 2 came out. Oh, and, boy. No, I'm dead serious. And I, like, Paddington 2 and You Were Never Really Here, I think, are truly special A great movies. double feature. And actually would be a pretty good double feature. <laughs> being through something, so it's dealing with a lot. It, it's, 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 well, it's not, not the talking one about something summer. on the opposite end. Yeah. Um, but one. Paddington 2, if you haven't seen it, I am not talking bullshit there. Uh, <laughs> Can I throw this in yes. real quick? Big shout out to one Mr. Al White, who can be found at, at Mr. Al White <laughs> uh, for the amazing shirts that we got. Yes. And We're never really a star. If that's not an advertisement to come to the Animal Draft House in Winchester, Virginia, I do not know what else is. Uh, it is truly special to watch a film like yes. this with all of you. And to have a, a, a creative person like Al here, you know, curate uh, one of his favorite films, um, is like, it's amazing. And I want more, more of that. More of yeah. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. this is one of the best days of my life. Like, this yeah. morning, like, I was so, like, when we talked to Danny, I was like, if I want to keep people just going and talking, and I want to talk to the audience, yeah. and like, I hope someone would hate it so we could argue. <laughs> <laughs> that was pointless. Uh, but, like, yeah, and I hope after this we can still all hang out and keep chatting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not keeping anyone out of And, and like, here. Al, like, he's had one movie. One morning that he has been able to curate. Right. Hey, no, no, I'm pulling the plug. No, I'm plugging you to Andy. I'm plugging you to Andy. We could have an Al White week. Ooh, yeah. I come to. Oh, I'm very mad. I've made one. No, 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 no. No, no that's sensitive. Sensitive director. What's interesting is that Al has put out his top twenty-five of the decade. Yeah. If you, if you stalk or. Casually look at his uh, no, stop. Twitter feed. You don't have to stop. I mean, um, I'm online. <laughs> Letterboxd will go through that entire He will respond to you. As well. uh, it would be interesting to watch a bunch of those films. Do you know the other four that round out your top five of the decade? No, top five? Can you vamp for one second? I'll just bring it up. Yeah, we, we can vamp. Andy, hey, vamp. Vamp. No, no. For some reason, oh yeah, good. I've got a, I've got a pocket full of questions for Al White that are going to come out during the Q&A. Pocket full of questions. Uh, and then, uh, so one of us, uh, if, uh, you know, uh, can ask this question. These are just random questions put together by one Monty Taylor uh, to ask Al White different things. So while Al's, Al's looking at that, I think we will ask him... I, I pulled the worst one out of this thing. Uh, but Brad, maybe we'll end the podcast with this question that Monty came up with. You ask me I'll give you another one. I'll give you another one. I'll give you another one. I'll give you one more. Uh, Al, why is purple? <laughs> That's a good question. Here's the other one. I'll let this Royal. one be the second one. Royal. This is the second one? First of all, allow him to answer that question. Oh, sorry. Why, why is, purple? is purple? Thanks, Monty. Because move. Oh. Mm. Prince. Yeah, yeah, right on. Right the second on. question from uh, Monty Taylor. Yeah, go for okay. it. Do go. you wash your shins or just kind of let soapy water trickle down and call it a day? I have a lot to say about this, actually, uh, but I won't. Um, okay, maybe I'm sharing too much. But when I was growing up, I was an, I was an only child, and I feel you learn things from siblings, maybe, like what to do and what yeah. not to do. But I only had really, you know, my mom and dad to learn stuff from, and mostly my mother. And I didn't necessarily, it was, I remember being a teenager 
and then have a conversation with someone and be like, oh, I meant to be washing my legs. <laughs> like, that was a legitimate <laughs> moment where it was just like, to like, when you're showering, you just kind of deal with yeah, what you can reach. Yeah. And then suddenly you're realizing, I don't know if I've ever washed my ankles properly. Yeah. <laughs> I freaked out about it a bit. Yeah. So now, thoroughly washed, let me tell you, sir. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I was utterly impressed with the uh, selection of questions Monty has sent. And so expect to see more as we continue our journey. I'm excited. My, I, I have my top five Go films for it. We, decade. We because that really matters. Vamp. 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 <laughs> did you know I was going to say Moff? I did actually. <laughs> uh, number five is Whiplash. Ooh, yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, my number four was Phantom Thread. Okay. Uh, my number three is a very weird film called Corn Island, which is impossible to find if you want to see it. Imported DVD from Switzerland with English subtitles, but it's not from Switzerland. It's from What's like it Tank Corn Island. Corn Island. It's a wonderful movie that is almost entirely silent about this uh, old man who uh, is a crop grower, and it's a true story to an extent. These are things that like happen. And he, he's in a very particular river that's between two nations that are at war, and he finds this mud bank and begins to grow corn there, essentially. Um, and that's kind of it for the whole film. It's wonderful. Uh, some of the films you're watching, like, this is what all films should be like, where they just enrich your soul rather than are preoccupied with being cool. They're just like helping you feel better. My number two film is a ghost story, and number one is you and everyone again. Hello. Oh man, good list, good list. All right, uh, thank you everybody. Bravo. Bravo. Uh, thanks to the Alamo Draft House in Winchester, Virginia. Thank you, Andy Garrison. Thank you to the Naranjas family. This has been a blast. March 9th, chat Six club to eight. session two. Does that seem right? Six to eight. Six to eight. Yeah, six, six to eight. eight. Six to eight. Uh, and on that note, uh, this is the outro. Bye. So item number 73, he's sitting in an alley. How to clean no, a face wound. Billy, I've cut you off. I dropped in the interview. What? The chat club so that uh, is the Is this the outro now? Yeah, we're in the outro. Man. We're in the outro. I so much gold. I was just sitting back and listening to items <laughs> one through 72, giggling to myself. I let you get that far before I uh, cut you off. 72 minutes of gold. That's fine. It's, it's cool. gone. It's lost forever. It's cool. All right. But how cool was that conversation <laughs> with Al White and the rest of the gang at the Alamo Winchester? It was great. It was so great. Cool. It was so much fun. Yeah. Um, I, I Honestly, like as far as the best way that you could spend a leap day. Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. It was on the 29th. Uh, this yeah. conversation until yeah. next leap day, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a good time. Oh yeah, <laughs> that, no, I, I I had a blast. I I think we went into a, a, a wide array of topics that we. You know, at the end of the interview, we could have gone on at lengths about trigger warnings, and I think Al probably would have liked us to uh, yeah. talked a little bit longer before we cut him off. Yeah, well, and I mean, you know, I just want to say, like. I liked what Al had to say about that. And I think it makes for a really great conversation where, where people can really come in on both sides of it. Um, but that, I think that's really like, uh, what I liked about the entirety of that conversation was the movie is all subjective and, and you like what you like and you don't like what you don't like, but there's so much to talk about. Yeah. And uh, you know, the, we could talk about, you were never really here forever. Uh, and, and you know, Al was like, 
afterwards, he's like, uh, did I come off as a total a-hole uh, during that trigger warning conversation? He was very concerned about that, but I don't think he does. No, I don't think I just so think he was challenging maybe your side of the things and maybe my side of things. Well, and I mean, you know, if you want to have an interesting conversation, you can't all just pat each other on the back. Somebody somebody has to say, maybe I disagree a little yeah, bit here yeah, and see where sure, that goes. For sure. <laughs> uh, but I am just so thankful for those that... Uh, we're brave enough to join us up in the projection booth to talk with Al about you were never really here. Uh, I, I, for me, I, I think my biggest takeaway uh, from the whole experience was the, the moment where we were talking about like, is this a hopeful ending for, uh, or yeah. a, a not so hopeful ending? And I still lean on like, I don't see sunshine and roses in these characters mm. futures. That being said, Al makes a point about how happiness is an absurd construct and uh, maybe even a poisonous construct. And why should we expect happiness for endings at all? Well, and I, I like the idea of what does happiness mean anyways. Um, that like that quest for eternal pleasure is is not productive at all. Yeah. I'm, I'm on Al's side on this, though, and I, I find it to be actually a very hopeful ending. Um, and I, that's me well, as a person. What does that mean for you? We're gonna keep, let's continue this right, conversation. Let's, let's let's fucking what, dig into what it. What does hopeful mean for these characters? I even as a word, I hate using the word hope because I I think it's a like a positive spin on apathy. I think it's a nonsense word. Um, but positive spin on apathy. Yes. I don't. You. That's a whole nother episode. We're gonna have to talk about that off mic. All right. That's cool. Uh, but uh, but I think I think it 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 leaves you with the understanding that bad things will happen to you in your life. And that is going to happen. It's not like, will something bad happen to me? It's when will it happen and how will it impact me? And those are the things that define who we are uh, as people. And the bad experiences, as much as the good experiences we have, make up the sum total of our life. And I would like to think that if I am blessed to get to 100, I can look back at the bad experiences and find them as informative to me as a person um, and as formative to me um, as any of the good things that I did. So the hope that you take is how their lives reflect your lives or what your hope for your life is. Yeah, I just I think if you encounter great tragedy and terrible things happen to you, you can look at that as tragedy limits but your are existence. Are you speaking to the hope of the characters? Yes. Or are you speaking the hope to yourself? No, I think to the characters because they have experienced great tragedy. And I, and I think that there are absolutely people who who uh, see things like that happen and go, well, that person can can really have no hope for a positive experience in their life because of the great tragedy that's happened to them. And my take on that, and I think the movie's take on that, is great tragedy will happen to us all, and life persists anyways. And the next day is the day to find something good for that day. As the weather is nice. Enjoy the weather. It's, you know, life is a, an experience of weather, not not climate so much. Uh, and that's why You Were Never Really Here is one of the best films of the decade, because even oh, yeah. though we just spent an hour plus talking about yeah. it, Billy and I are still arguing. No, I think there's a lot to talk about it. And I, I, I don't, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. It's it's not my personal favorite film of the decade, but it is inescapably part of the conversation for some of the best work that has been produced over that, like, randomly limited 10-year period. What <laughs> is the best film of the decade? We never actually heard from you what, what you would pick as your number one. For me? Uh, spring. 100%. Justin Benson, Aaron Moorhead. That movie speaks to me about what I want out of life, and there's a movie about romance and hope for what could be despite uh, experiencing great loss and death. So uh, I like that take. I changed it. It's not Paddington 2. I forgot about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Yeah, That's I was the best say. film of the decade. 
And that's how we're going to end this episode. <laughs> Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Yes, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Uh, yes, 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 yes. Uh, Billy, where can our listeners find you online? Uh, so you can find me uh, on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at WBDAS. Uh, and you can also find me uh, hosting Bill and Claire's Excellent Adventures, uh, which is a podcast I do with my 10-year-old daughter as we work together to expand her cinematic horizons. Right now, we're in the midst of a dive into the musicals. Up next is West Side Story. So tune in for that. You can follow the other dorks, Lisa Gullickson at Sidewalk Siren. You can follow, uh, let's throw Andy Geyerson in there. Yeah. At Cinema Bandwagon, Bandwagon. on Twitter. Uh, at Film Club Andy on Instagram. At Alamo Winchester, also on Twitter. Uh, follow Darren Smith at the Disco Dork. Follow Brian Young at the Turtle Dork and at the Turtle Dork One on Instagram. I am Brad Gullickson at Mouth Dork on all social medias. And uh, we've got let's see, uh, we just dropped our episode talking to Nat Faxon and uh, Jim Rash about the Force Majeure remake Downhill. That's just dropped. That's exciting. That's really cool. It's our first Sundance conversation. We have Cuddles and Rage, Jimmy and Liz Reed talking about their book, Bites of Terror, coming yeah. up. And, uh, oh, Billy, we still haven't even dropped your episodes from L.A. You had a conversation with Alexander Philippe about uh, Leap of Faith, his William Friedkin documentary. Yeah, and we also get into his theory about how to revitalize Star Wars. So, it's uh, It might be a popular episode. Uh, it's an interesting conversation, I'll tell you that much. Rise of Skywalker, Emperor's a clone, apparently. What? Yep. Was that not obvious from the reading of that movie? Uh, not from my perspective. Oh, okay. Okay. That's, that was always my interpretation. Really? Yeah. Huh. I guess that would be the only way that that would be explained. Well, because he was dead. D-E-D dead. Was he, though? Or did he just, like, hang out at the bottom of that yeah, ship? Yeah, he, he like... turned into a, a, a dark force fart. And then they clearly had to make a clone body. <laughs> I guess. Why wouldn't they make him a young clone body Clone body like they did in the Dark Horse comic, uh, uh, Dark Empire? Because uh, it's a long time ago and the technology isn't there yet. So they can only clone him back as an old wrinkly dude? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so this is a great outro. I'm keeping all of that shit. Um, uh, but then I, I had a conversation with Bria Grant about her performance in After Midnight uh, and some of her upcoming uh, like writing work and directorial work that she's What did she doing. think of Rise of Skywalker? Uh, you know, man, we didn't get into it. Well, that episode's not going to be as popular. Well, I mean, that's, we'll say hopefully uh, right. not. <laughs> Until next time, guys. What's happening? Take care. Bye. Visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone else's dreams? So, uh, you were never really here, best of the decade, reason number 93. Um, how to crush tiny green be green jelly beans in your fingers. I mean, that makes you feel like you're lord and master of the entire universe. It also talks about how we crush the things that we love. And it's a delicious treat that I like to have from time to time on my own while I'm sitting on my couch pondering my existence. Reason number 94, you were never really here as the best of the decade. How to drive a car while you're on painkillers. Probably you shouldn't. I think this movie makes a great case in favor of not driving on painkillers, but maybe also don't drive a car while you've been shot in the face. I think that makes it tough to do. But anyways, it's a definite advertisement for what you shouldn't do, which are things that we should all get familiar with.